Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Infection spike, South Korean coronavirus cases almost double in just one day. Mind the gap, EU leaders battle to fill the Brexit budget hole. And sailing away, the CEO of Virgin Cruises talks about their new launch at a challenging time for the industry. It's Friday, let's make a move. the show on another first move Friday Friday almost the weekend and not a moment too soon either given the volatility on global markets seen over the past 24 hours right now US futures set to open lower as you can see adding to the losses that we saw yesterday we actually saw big price swings in yesterday's session with stocks hitting an air pocket at around midday though I should point out we did close off the session lows it feels a little lazy at this stage to blame coronavirus virus jitters, but it's clearly adding significant levels of uncertainty around the globe. Take a look at the bond markets too. They're pricing that uncertainty. Ten-year yields are now below one and a half percent. Investors predicting two further cuts from the U.S. Federal Reserve this year. That's the message from the bond markets right now. Meanwhile, Safe Haven Gold is on track for its best week in over a month and hitting seven-year highs. Goldman Sachs analysts out this morning saying they see more upside of up to 13% in fact while warning of a significant downside risks to commodity prices too going forward. The data during the Asia session also a worry here. Japanese stocks falling some four tenths of one percent on word that factory activity there contracted at its fastest pace in more than seven years. And in South Korea, shares there slumping one and a half percent as coronavirus cases jumped quite significantly as well. In fact, the Kospi was one of the worst performers of all the Asian majors this week, falling some three and a half percent. And actually, South Korea is where we're going to bring in today's drivers to the coronavirus outbreak. And China is reporting nearly 900 new cases Friday, including over 200 from prisons in the Hubei province. There are now more than 76,000 confirmed cases worldwide. At least 2,200 people have lost their lives so far. And in South Korea, cases spiked from 28 just a week ago to more than 200 today. Paul Hancock is live in Seoul with more. Paul, we have to be a bit careful here. I think that perhaps the fear overtakes the numbers here in anything else. But for two particular regions there, the prime minister said they're in an emergency situation. Talk us through what we're seeing. 
we've just come back from the city of Daegu. This is about a three-hour drive south of Seoul, and this is where the vast majority of cases over the past few days have been occurring, and they're all linked to one religious group. Now, this is a group called uh, Sinchonji, and it has one particular building uh, where there were religious services. One infected member went to those services, according to officials, and that's where they believe many uh, of the, uh, the linkages come to that religious group. So 204 confirmed cases, 131 associated just with that group itself. Now, it was a city that was certainly uh, concerned, shall we say. It's a city of two and a half million people. I've been there many times before and it is always bustling. It is always busy. But I was there Friday evening and there was not many people on the streets. Those that I did speak to uh, did say that they were worried. They were concerned about what was happening and they didn't know where it was going to uh, end yet. So they certainly are Concerned, And this is obviously uh, based on the fact that they know that there has been a significant spike in a very short period of time in their city. Now, just about a mile or a kilometre and a half away from this religious group building is a US military base. Uh, I went to speak to the commander of that Daegu base and he said that they are restricting uh, movement on and off the base. They're, they're prohibiting all non-essential travel from US military personnel to Daegu itself. And when it comes to the South Korean military, they have concerns of their own. Three South Korean military personnel have con been uh, confirmed with the novel coronavirus uh, this point, all in different provinces around the country, but all focused and have links to this one particular city, Daegu. That is a city you are going to hear a lot about in the coming days, Julia. Yeah, it's the sheer degree of uncertainty, I think, that's, that's also part of the problem here, to, to your point. Have there been any official measures put in place similar to what we've seen in, in China with the quarantine measures in particular, or is this just people simply staying off the streets because they're afraid here? Well, in this particular area, there, we understand from health officials that the congregation of this one religious group in particular was over a thousand people. They are trying to contact them all. They say they still haven't managed to do that, even days into this cluster becoming uh, apparent. They say more than 50 people simply aren't picking up the phone uh, at this point, which is a concern to them, of course. They say that there are many who have been self-quarantined because they believe they have symptoms, uh, and there are 131 associated with this group that have tested positive. So with, when it comes to the US military and the South Korean military, because this area is heavily militarized uh, in Daegu, they are having mandatory quarantines of those who have had any kind of contact with this particular area. And of course, the, uh, the self-imposed quarantines uh, when they believe that they have symptoms until they are tested. But much of what we're seeing within the country at this point is self-quarantine for the 14 days that we're seeing uh, elsewhere in, in the world as well. They believe that this 14 days will encompass any potential incubation uh, of this uh, this virus. But what we're seeing now over the past couple of days is not just pockets in certain areas. This is north, south, east and west in South Korea. There are provinces all across the country now that have had at least one case. Yeah.
and the challenges of that quarantine, even if it's self-imposed. Paula Hancocks, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now, the quarantine measures clearly having an impact in China too. Chinese auto and the global airline sector uh, impacted as uh, the outbreak hits demand. Chinese car sales plummeted 92% on an annualized basis in the first half of February. The airline industry also warning that the outbreak could cut global traffic by 5%, costing it over $29 billion this year. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this story. I mean, that's a significant fall in an already impacted market over with the, the Chinese autos, of course, but to be expected given a lot of people aren't going out and the quarantine measures in place, Claire. Talk us through what we know here. Yeah, Julia, this is a demand story when it comes to autos. It's also a supply story. We're hearing that from the Chinese uh, Car Passenger uh, Association that for the first 16 days in February, so this is high-frequency data here, uh, they're seeing a 92% drop in sales. They expect for the full month that will be about 70%. So that is a big drop. And we're hearing also from individual companies about what they're facing. Nissan saying today uh, that they are expected to delay the reopening of some of their factories in China. Volvo also saying uh, that they're going to see sort of a staggered reopening starting next week. We heard from the CEO of Jaguar Land Rover. They are flying parts out of China. So that's the supply story. They also say uh, that the dealerships are struggling to get back up and running. There are no sales in China at the moment. So this uh, is something that car makers are really grappling with. Don't forget that, that China is the world's biggest passenger car market. So, so it's heavily exposing all of these different car makers. And again, airlines as well. This was the front line, the, the first industry really that we looked at when this crisis broke. They now say the cost will be north of 29 billion. If we look at the comparison with SARS, that cost the global airline industry 7 billion in lost revenue. This uh, likely now to be more than four times that, although I will say most of that concentrated in Asia Pacific, about 28 billion of that lost revenue among Asia Pacific airlines, Julian. Yeah, I mean, it's key to look at, and we're going to continue to look at this as the data comes through, just to get a sense. And to your point, this is at least short-term high-frequency data in the auto sector, so we get a pretty fair sense. We've had survey data from industry all over the world today, and actually the one that caught my eye here, Japan, incredibly yeah. weak there. We're talking about a huge economy in the world flirting with recession here. Right, so we now have, you know, China at a standstill. That's the second largest economy in the world. Japan, the third largest economy in the world. We got the Purchasing Managers Index uh, survey today, which shows that, uh, that that manufacturing business activity is at its lowest point in almost six years. It expanded at its slowest pace there. Now, Japan, don't forget, uh, that economy is contracted in the last quarter at 6.3% on an annual basis. So this really reinforces the sense that that economy might not be able to, to avoid a recession uh, you know, that's two quarters of, of, of straight contraction. And it wasn't all bad news today. We got some uh, some slight expansion in Germany and, and in, in Europe, the UK as well, not as bad as expected. But there are cracks emerging if you look closely at those reports as well, both in the UK and Germany, uh, manufacturing and private sector businesses reporting uh, that there was sort of a, a, a slowdown in inputs in parts available for manufacturing, a slowdown in delivery times, all of that linked to the coronavirus. So I think we're just getting, uh, you know, yet another sense of just how intertwined these economies are with China and how this impact will be felt through global supply chains.
Yeah, we talk about the United States here a lot on this show, but to your point, Asia-Pacific, Europe, far more leverage to China and slow down there than, uh, than other parts of the world. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, the leaders from the European Union deadlocked over their next budget. Denmark, Austria, Sweden and the Netherlands, the so-called frugal four, say they can't pay more to make up for the UK's lost fees following Brexit. Anna Stewart joins me now. I want to the chickens come home to roost here, Anna. <laughs> but if they, those guys aren't going to pay up, who is? These uh, EU budget battles every seven years are always fairly epic and they really lay bare the fundamental challenges and flaws, I guess, of the EU. Not all countries and economies are created equally and they have to play by the same rules and pay into the same budget. So... On the one hand, we have, as you said, the frugal four, Austria, the Netherlands, Sweden and Denmark, led by Germany, the big arch hawk. On the other side, we have 15 members, the poorest states like Poland, Hungary, actually led by France, which is a net payer as opposed to a net beneficiary, uh, but they're a very powerful farming union. And this big battle, of course, has got worse this time around, as you said, due to Brexit. There's an $80 billion budget hole left by the UK leaving over the next seven years. Now, the big battle here and the reason why the talks that started yesterday have yet to end and may not end through the weekend. Uh, firstly, those uh, the Frugal Four in Germany, they want to keep their rebates. That is something that has been discussed to be scrapped. They also want to cap um, the budget to 1% of GDP, whereas France and the big, big spenders, let's say, uh, they want to see more spending on the EIB. That's the European Investment Bank and also lots more cohesion spending in the region. So, Honestly, it seems to be not much compromise so far, but these EU summits and these discussions do go on and on and on, as you well know. Uh, there could be some compromise, but we're waiting to find out what that would be. Julia? Yes, I'm sure there are a few people in the British government that are laughing at this moment, so I will uh, just make <laughs> out the point that it's non-chlorinated chickens coming home to roost, at least for now. <laughs> <laughs> Naughty. Karen, it is Friday. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. The U.S. says a deal with the Taliban to reduce violence is due to take effect at midnight Afghan time. It calls for Taliban fighters, Afghan troops and international forces to refrain from attacking each other for a week. If successful, the Taliban says it will sign a comprehensive agreement with the United States on February 29th. Top U.S. intelligence officers are warning that Russia is looking to interfere in the 2020 presidential election. Sources tell CNN that the officials warned lawmakers that Moscow is taking steps to ensure President Donald Trump wins a second term. CNN's Nathan Hodge joins us from Moscow. So, I mean, I want to roll my eyes. This takes us back to 2016, where intelligence officials said that the Russians interfered. Now it seems they're looking to do the same again. What are the Russians saying about this? And uh, tell us more. Julia, yeah, it, uh, the, it looks like Russiagate 2.0. Um, you know, the Russians today, the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, told reporters that uh, the reports about this briefing uh, warning that the Russians were intending to interfere once again in 2020 elections uh, were paranoid messages. Now, this isn't straying very far from the standard Russian script. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has said since the 2016 elections that Russia does not, has not, and will not meddle in the elections of other countries. Uh, nonetheless, 
address the conclusions of the Mueller report and the sweeping conclusions of the U.S. intelligence community have all pointed to Russia as waging a campaign of an information campaign to interfere, put the finger on the scales of uh, American democracy in the 2016 election. And the fear here is that that could be repeated. Now, we're seeing some blowout, um, some some blowback over the uh, the briefing last week by intelligence officials, uh, the classified briefing briefing given to uh, members of Congress. Uh, earlier this week, President Trump announced that he was naming Rick Grinnell, uh, the ambassador to Germany, as his uh, acting director of national intelligence. Now, this is all part of the fallout uh, over Trump's dissatisfaction with this uh, with this briefing uh, in, in which uh, members of Congress and which lawmakers were told uh, that the Russians would seek once again to tip the election uh, in his favor. I think he sees this as something that could be yet another asterisk over his presidency should he win again. Uh, certainly the Russians have continued their denials, uh, but it's always been interesting to see that the, the president, with his criticisms of uh, his own defense and intelligence establishment, has often mirrored uh, what the Russians have said as well. Julia? Mm. Yeah, I have to say authorities haven't done enough to protect against this, quite frankly, in the, uh, the past three and a half years. But I think it's the last thing Trump needs either to be a, have this association, perhaps, that the Russians are pushing for his win. Nathan, great to have you with us. Nathan Hodge. All right, the Democratic Nevada caucus set for Saturday. Bernie Sanders is surging in the polls after emerging unscathed from a scorched earth debate in Las Vegas. President Trump holding a rally in Las Vegas today. It will be the third time he's rallied in a state where Democrats are about to vote. All right, still to come on First Move, the boat that rocked Virgin Voyages is bringing rock star cruising to the new generation of adult-only sailors. We'll speak to the CEO and a table for two for a bargain price of just $4.5 million. Meet the entrepreneur paying for lunch with Warren Buffett. Stay with us. We're back after this. to first move where John Petride is a portfolio manager at Tocqueville Asset Management joins us now. John, great to have you with us. Thanks you were saying to me earlier that you think the market's looking for a reason here to sell off. Why? Yeah, I mean, we, that we had a huge year last year that's rolled into um, 2020. You know, if you think of all the events that have happened, you know, conflict in the Middle East, coronavirus, trade wars with China, global slowdown, central banks printing money. Um, you know, we're trying to artificially grow, inflate our way to growth, um, but yet stocks continue to rise higher. And valuations, we're not cheap really across the board. If you look at a price to earnings, price to sales, I mean, we're, we're near higher levels that we haven't seen in quite some time. So I think that investors are, are, are looking for something to, 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 to pair back on. We get people on here saying actually there's a fear of missing out still, even with these markets and actually underlying the economies of the world aren't doing so badly. Um, the real concern factor here is coronavirus and what economic impact that has. But you think actually some of the weakness here is political. Yeah, I mean, I think the last two days, you know, following Wednesday night's uh, debate, and, uh, you know, if you look at the Democratic candidates, I, in my opinion, I think Bloomberg and Biden are definitely the most neutral. Maybe Buttigieg is a neutral, is, is, is a moderate as well. But Sanders and Warren are clearly uh, more extreme. And if you look at how, this isn't a political statement, it's how the market identifies each candidate. There's the economic candidate and the social candidate. And regardless of what people may feel about President Trump on the social side, he's clearly very pro-business. And Bernie Sanders is picking up in the polls, and he is not pro-business. I mean, he's talking about raising taxes and, and, and spending more and taxing the wealthy. That's not good 
good for the market. So that's why you're seeing, I think, a bit of a pullback here. You know, and this is what makes markets, because we've also had the conversation on this show about the idea that actually a, a Bernie Sanders rise in candidacy for the Democratic Party will likely make it more likely that Donald Trump wins and therefore is positive for markets. I think that's, I think that's right. It's well, funny, again, you think it? about two ways, right? Again, there's the economic track and the social track. And until the social track derails the economic track, and we've come pretty close under President Trump, uh, you know, the markets are going to continue to go higher. I mean, isn't it the irony that four years ago, leading into the election, anyone that it, the market fear was, oh, my God, if Trump wins, I'm going to cash gold and treasuries. And here we are with a significantly higher stock market. And now we're saying the opposite about the Democratic candidate. It's just an amazing turn of events. Yeah, don't listen to people who make judgment calls about <laughs> political impact on, on markets. Um, but what is important, and I agree with you on this, is um, despite the fact that we keep talking about fresh record highs, within that, leadership's coming from fewer and fewer stocks. I mean, half, half of the Nasdaq in bear market. Here. Yeah, I think when investors buy a passive index fund, or the S&P 500 index fund, they have to look under the hood and see what they're actually buying. Because the index fund is market cap weighted, meaning the more that a stock um, goes up, the higher their, the, the, the value of their company is, the larger the weight within the index. And right now, we haven't seen this type of stock in sector concentration really since the dot-com bubble. I mean, the top five holdings, which are, you know, we all know them, the Microsoft, Apples, Googles, Facebooks of the world, make up about 18% of the entire index. And if you look at tech and consumer services, which is Google and Facebook, those two sectors constitute about 35% of the S&P 500. So, you know, as an active manager, you know, one thing that our fiduciary responsibility is to diversify our clients' assets, to spread out their bets, and not provide concentration or yes. much sector concentration because, uh, you, know, you know, things revert to the mean. They go to the average. Things sell off. And if all of our bets are placed in one basket, you know, th that's yeah, not you're really in right trouble. Thing. But people buy the, the market, the index, saying, yeah, I'm going to own the market without understanding the underlying concentration. It's a concern. Very quickly, are we at risk of a correction here? Goldman Sachs suggested we were. Do you think we are? I mean, people have been waiting for a correction for a long time. But, uh, you know, is there a sell-off with the Fed, you know, on hold? The global central banks continuing to print money. I think any short-term sell-off is going to be met quickly with buyers because where are you going? Yeah. You know, we're at all-time high. We're, we're, we're approaching record highs with gold. Yields on, you know, in, in developed markets around the world, you cannot buy a long-dated bond with a yield of under 2%, with over 2%. And that's the challenge. So, so where are you going? Yeah, right? So it's forcing, <laughs> it's forcing people to equities. John, fantastic to have you with us. Yeah, John Retreat is there, Tocqueville Asset Management. Now, as we've been discussing, as the coronavirus outbreak hits global trade, Maersk, the world's largest container shipping company, remains undeterred in their quest to reduce their carbon footprint. I spoke to the CEO about the company's efforts. Listen in. We have had uh, for for more than a decade now uh, quite an agenda to become more fuel efficient with, with our with our fleet and since 2008 we have reduced our fuel consumption per container that we ship by more than 40 percent uh, what that means is that we have decoupled our volume growth from our fuel uh, fuel fuel consumption um, in, in, in the last uh, more than a decade, our business has also grown uh, 40% and we, we are emitting more or less the same uh, CO2. We are using more or less the same uh, amount of fuel as we did uh, 12 years ago. Uh, we also believe that we can continue down the road of becoming more fuel efficiency, about 2 percentage points per year, so that we can grow in line with market without using more fuel for the next decade. 
we are working hard also on on trying to figure out how we how we actually get to a net carbon uh, neutral uh, position in in 2050. We we articulated that target in in 2018, and and during 2019 we identified you know uh, tr- at least three different types of fuels that that can help us get to get to net uh, zero neutral. Can you do it quicker? I feel like given the push that we're seeing behind the scenes right now, it needs to happen quicker than 2050. Would you agree? Yes. Well, uh, I think that uh, what we need to do in in global shipping, uh, we need to define what is the fuel of the future. Uh, and uh, and hopefully we can find a, a, a fuel that we can we can uh, uh, produce in in the quantity quality that we need, but also one that is uh, carbon uh, neutral. We we believe there's a good reason to think that we can do that. Um, then the fuel has to be produced actually produced at scale, and we need the regulatory environment to be in, in place to to mandate global shipping to use that fuel. Thankfully, uh, we have, uh, you know, we are a, a, an industry which is regulated globally by the United yes. Nations uh, IMO. And that means that we can actually demand or regulate that we have to use a certain kind of fuel. So, so that's, I think, is something that gives us hope that we can achieve, uh, achieve, achieve our goal of, of uh, 2050 or earlier. Interesting. Market opens next. Stay with us. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell this morning and as expected we've got a lower open across the board for US stocks. A weak tone globally today too. Procter & Gamble and Coke are the latest US multinationals to warn on the coronavirus outbreak. The week began, if you remember, with Apple's big revenue warning as a result of the impact. I want to give you a look at what we're seeing in the Treasury market again. Ten-year yields tumbling below that one point the lowest level, in fact, since September of last year. 30-year yields are at record lows. Investors are predicting two further cuts from the U.S. Federal Reserve this year. The St. Louis Fed President, James Bullard, said today that he still doesn't think cuts will be necessary. Now, it's not clear how the coronavirus outbreak will hit the cruise industry this year, though it is a glowing sector. Passenger numbers have almost doubled in the past decade to a forecast 32 million people this year. More than 50 cruise lines are currently operating around the world. And today, Scarlet Lady, the first of four new cruise ships from Virgin Voyages, is making its debut in Dover, England. President and CEO of Virgin Voyages, Tom McAlpin, joins us now. Tom, great to have you with us. And I do want to talk about what you're doing with Virgin Voyages here. But but first, I do want to talk about the impact of the coronavirus and what we've seen, particularly off the coast of, of Japan. Is it having any kind of impact on sentiment and on bookings for your voyages here? Well, thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Uh, Today is a very exciting day. We're here in Dover as we, we launch the Scarlet Lady on a, what I would call a showcase tour and, and take her to multiple places, uh, to Liverpool, to New York, to Miami, to showcase the world. Um, so we're very excited about creating something very different and very unique in the industry. Hopefully I have a chance to talk about that. I understand your question on, on the coronavirus. And look, you know, this, the health and, and safety of our sailors and our crew are, are 
paramount to us. So we take extra precautions to make sure that we're doing all the proper screening to, to uh, make sure that we don't have any type of incidents on our ship. I have to say that we are, will be operating out of Miami in the Caribbean where the, where the coronavirus is not a problem. So we do not think this is something that, that will hurt us, uh, certainly not in the long term. Um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation out there, but I think it's important to put things into perspective. There are more than 300 ships out there cruise ships operating around the world. We have one incident on one ship. So, you know, we, we don't think this is a problem and we certainly don't think this is a long-term problem. Yeah, you, you make a great point. One about the scale of what we're talking about here and the number of um, the number of cruises that are in operation right now. And geographically, you're in the Caribbean as well. Just final point on this. Will you operate a screening process as passengers come aboard just to be extra cautious? Yeah, so I want to just tell you a little bit about what the Scarlet Lady is and our product. We are about creating something very different. Um, it's a new experience. The cruise industry has been very successful. Uh, it is a very uh, a fantastic uh, industry. We are about creating a new way um, to cruise. We, set, we say set sail the virgin way, and that is all about being different. It's about the, our name, which says a little bit more about the transformational type of experience that we want to create. Um, it is about the, 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 the size of the ship, which is a mid-sized ship. Um, it is the look and feel of the ship. So we want a ship that can be unique um, and, and interesting and be recognized anywhere around the world. So we took inspiration from super yachts. And when you go on board, this is, you know, a fantastic experience built around six magnificent restaurants, restaurants that you would want to go at sea with fantastic uh, wine menus. Um, and, and more than that, it's an immersive entertainment experience with a theater that transforms into three different configurations. We did something very different in order to, to create this kind of boat boutique lifestyle um, at sea. And that is we've created this for the adult market. And that means only 18 and above allowed on board the ship. And that allows us to create a, 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 an elevated, a more sophisticated experience. We take you to the unique places. We're taking you to Bimini, and we've created a fantastic uh, Virgin Voyages Beach Club at Bimini for our exclusive use. And think of this as kind of Tulum meets Ibiza and create these fantastic high-end high experiences for our sailors. It's quite fascinating, actually, the growth in this industry surprised me. A more than doubling of passengers over the last decade. It's a reported, what, $150 billion industry. But to your point, you're trying to cater to a, a younger, cooler, if I'm allowed to say it, um, audience here. Talk to me about the use of technology of here, wearable technology in particular. I believe there's a, a separate way of being identified, champagne being brought to you, for example, getting into your, into your cabin here. There's a technology element, I think, that's also critical for people to understand. Yeah, so we looked for ways of trying to use technology and, again, trying to differentiate across the board. So we will use technology in unique ways. You know, we have uh, an app and we have a feature called Shake for Champagne where you can shake the, the, the app and order champagne and be delivered right to you in just minutes. Um, we use technology to understand where people are and help with wayfinding. Um, and it's throughout. We've actually created our, our staterooms and our cabins that transform. So during the day, it makes up into a sofa so you can entertain 
but at night the beds come together and it creates this very, very special sleep experience. So it is about using technology in different ways throughout to, to enhance the experience and make it better. You know, we want to use technology to communicate our sailors. We want our sailors to be uh, communicating back home. We use it to push information to reduce paper and to reduce waste. Yeah, I like the sustainable aspect as well. Just very quickly, where are you? Say again? Where, what, what is the room that you're in? Where are you? Oh, I am in, I'm on the Scar Lady. We're on uh, deck seven. We are in a champagne lounge called Sip. And I uh -huh. have to say that there are some I fantastic see. bottles of champagne alongside. And I just <laughs> can't wait to go over there and indulge a little bit. But... I'll finish this interview first. <laughs> Not while you're doing interviews. Tom McAlpin, <laughs> President and CEO of Virgin Voyages. Good luck with it, sir. Thank you for joining us. All right, time now for a look at our global movers. Shares of Deer are up after the company reported better than expected quarterly results. The heavy equipment maker says it sees signs of stabilization in the U.S. farm industry. And Sprint also in focus, the stock rallying this morning after it agreed with T-Mobile to tweak their proposed merger. The change would give T-Mobile's parent company, Deutsche Telekom, more control of the combined group. And shares of Dropbox are jumping after its quarterly earnings report beat estimates. Wow, look at that, up some 22%. Dropbox also raising its profit margin outlook. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But still ahead, Warren Buffett goes crypto crazy. Hmm, not so sure about that. The founder of Alcoin Tronics talks to us about his lunch with the Oracle of Omaha. Did Justin make Buffett a Bitcoin believer? All that and more next. The Weather, sponsored by Qatar Airways. controversial figure, but tech entrepreneur Justin Sun says the way most of us download content is pretty last century. Sun is the founder and CEO of the Singapore-based Tron Foundation. Tron is a blockchain network, and Sun has developed what he calls a next-generation operating system to allow easy and more cost-effective sharing of digital content. He says the Tron platform is great for buyers and sellers alike. Take a listen. Basically, like everybody today, we have a smartphone. Samsung, Google, all the companies is using Android. And Apple, of course, they use iOS. So for all the operating system in the world, there is a lot of developers, they develop like, like application for the operating system. So you can check on like App Store, you can see lots of the games, lots of the content, lots of the other applications on the phone. So you download those applications. So, so Tron is more like iOS and Android. So we are like a operating system. And the developers, they will contribute their code and their application into this system. So actually the users, they can play the game, content platform, like everything on top, building on top of Tron. But explain the blockchain the decentralized nature of what you've created here? Because I think for most people, when you're talking about an operating system, they go, yeah, 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 I get it. But what makes you unique? Explain why this is unique. First of all, the privacy of user is not controlled by decentralized operating system. Right. So today, like for example, Apple, Google, Facebook, and all the large companies, they control users' data 
and the user's privacy. They can choose suspend like user's account or release the user's privacy to other people. But in decentralized ecosystem, so we are just the system builders. We don't control like any user data privacy. It's all preserved by users themselves. For example, also the digital assets users have on our account system is also preserved by themselves. It's not like preserved by the system. So I believe this is a more democratic system. So it benefits the internet a lot by advocating this kind of the decentralized infrastructure. We often talk about utility value here. People pay for the content using the Tron cryptocurrency or coin called Tronix, T-R-X. But Sun says he wasn't satisfied with just building a cutting edge content sharing platform in his view. His company also bought the file sharing service BitTorrent. Sun talked to me about why and what the benefits are. BitTorrent is the world's first like a decentralized file transfer protocol. Not only in the world, over 100 million people use this to transfer the files every day. A lot of the big companies like Facebook, Blizzard, and US government is also use BitTorrent as a protocol to transfer their data. So this is like the first largest decentralized protocol. So how do you fit with other platforms, other data sharing, providing platforms like Twitter, like Facebook. How do you see the evolution of them compared to what you're creating here? I believe right now the large company eventually will um, be evolved to like an even more centralized structure. Because in the centralized structure, it's easy for the company to monetize the data and also recommend as to their clients. So that's why I believe the majority of the centralized company, they will come to an end to be like an even more centralized platform. It's interesting. Who owns the data? Who controls the data and can use the data? Now, Sun not only helped create the altcoin, the alternative coin, Tronix, he also says he invests in other digital currencies and recently got a chance to introduce one of the most famous investors in the world to all things crypto. I'm talking Warren Buffett. But first, here's a view on where he thinks crypto goes from here. Basically, I'm like a crypto believer, so I convert like <laughs> all my assets in 2013. So these days, I only exchange the crypto to fiat if I need to spend money in my of daily course. life. Do you own other digital assets like XRP, for example, or Ethereum? Are you diversified within your portfolio? Yeah, definitely. I own a lot of the XRP and the Ethereum too. Uh, I'm like a long-term believer of the crypto, so I, I want like all the crypto access to succeed. So that's why I own a lot of the other different crypto as well. Price predictions on some of these by the end of, I don't know, 2025. Sure. Uh, I, you wow. can tell me what I, you want to predict. I know that's tough. <laughs> yeah, sure. Go on then, do 2021. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. I, I can do some of the prediction because I'm a, like, like a long-term like a believer of yeah. blockchain. Uh, I definitely believe Bitcoin will pass 100K in 2025. I believe this price, maybe even we can achieve this price before like 2025. At the same time, I, I think lots of the other cryptocurrency projects 
like Tron, like Ethereum, like XRP. I believe all the projects will also um, gain to a bull market as well. Did you say this to Warren Buffett, by the way? Did you tell him that you thought that he'd probably recognize Bitcoin perhaps more than anything else at this moment? Did you tell him that you thought it could be $100,000 by 2025? And if you did, what did he say? I, I haven't said to him because um, I, I want him to more understand the fundamental parts of the blockchain and also uh, crypto. Yeah, so that's why I show him like how to transfer TRX uh, via blockchain. It's just take like a second. And also like how like TRX integrate with Samsung phone. So you can easier to transfer the tokens between two phones. Uh, I also tell him like crypto is the money for the next generation. It's the money for the internet. So I think right now Warren Buffett, he was curious to see like what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years. Whether it's investing or beyond, what advice did he give you? Warren Buffett um, tells me, if you want to survive in the capital market for over 60 years, you need to be very cautious. You need to always prefer certainty over uncertainty. That's why when we talk about a lot of the investment opportunity, that's the thing he tells me. Uh, we always need to focus on the certainty and we need to know like for the next five to ten years what's like the most certainty in the world and bet a huge chunk of the money on the certainty. It's interesting advice. I mean, did you manage to convince him of the merits of um, investing in digital assets or, or blockchain technology? Because for most of these people, that's something otherworldly. Yes. First of all, I believe Warren Buffett was very open to new technology and the crypto and the blockchain. That's why he accepted my first uh, Bitcoin and the TRX I sent to him. So, uh -huh. um, so basically, Warren Buffett is a Bitcoin holder now. <laughs> <laughs> Justin's on there. Warren Buffett, though, perhaps not quite a true believer yet, but at least open to new technologies. We'll know for sure this weekend when he publishes his yearly letter to shareholders. Investors want to know if the Oracle of Omaha is closer to putting any of his war chest of more than $120 billion in cash to work. Paula Monica joins us on this story. Paul, we can, we can talk about his crypto ambitions or not yeah, in a moment. Yeah, I don't think he's going to buy think... $120 billion worth in Bitcoin or Ripple. No, I know. Like he got that. a gift, though. Justin did give him a gift, apparently. Um, probably would rather talk about Apple as an investment than he would about investments like Heinz, I have to say. I would think so. I mean, Apple has been a huge success for Berkshire Hathaway. Clearly, uh, he timed that investment really well, um, you know, even though Apple's come back a little bit lately on some of the concerns about, you know, China demand and supply chain issues because of the coronavirus. But still, Apple has been a big hit for Berkshire Hathaway. And it's interesting because he's had an aversion to tech in the past. He used to be a big shareholder in IBM, but given IBM's troubles, he's now out of that. And Apple is the largest holding by far for Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, it's 14% now, isn't it, of their, their market cap? Yeah, it's a gigantic holding for the uh, company. It dwarfs pretty much all the other investments. But the interesting thing is that uh, you know Berkshire Hathaway has still lagged the broader market lately because even though they have a big bet on Apple, 
who doesn't have a big bet on Apple. This passive world we live in right now, everyone's in the fangs. He has just a small stake in Amazon, and he doesn't own any of the other big techs. So you look at some of the other portfolio holdings, Wells Fargo has struggled, Delta has struggled, and then Kraft Heinz. Oof. That's all we can say about that. It's been a disaster, and it, it seems like there's no end in sight to the problems at that company as investors are shunning the stock because consumers are shunning their food. Yeah, and you make such a great point there as well about this shift to passive investing and the sheer quantity, the rise of money, and the... the, the um huge proportion of the market that's now being shifted into these kind of momentum stocks. For him, as a value investor, looking for value in these markets is increasingly tough. Yeah, it has been difficult, and that is why this company continues to amass a larger war chest of cash, you know, nearly $130 billion. He has talked about wanting to do another gigantic deal, but the valuations don't seem to make sense. There were reports and Buffett confirmed it to the FT a few uh, weeks ago that Berkshire was approached by Tiffany when Tiffany was up for sale and Berkshire turned it down, even though Berkshire Hathaway owns a bunch of jewelers in its portfolio, you know, as operating companies. So you then wound up having LVMH run by Arnaud, one of the few people on the planet wealthier than Warren Buffett coming in and buying Tiffany instead. So it's tough for Buffett to find value. Yes or no, Paul, because we only have about 20 seconds. Probability of Warren Buffett buying Bloomberg LP if we saw Michael Bloomberg winning the presidential election. $60 billion, no. that would make a splash. No? Uh, okay. that would, no, he's just got out of the newspaper business. I don't really think yeah. he wants to go into media new or old or what have you. There's power in data, though. Paul and Monica will reconvene on this conversation, perhaps. All right. Paul and Monica, thank you. Now, after the break, a supreme victory in getting us hyped up about cookies. Why putting one brand on top of another is making us all say crumbs in a very British way. We're back after this. to first move where we are losing a little bit more ground here as you can see markets at this moment down just over 1.3% for the Nasdaq so it's the tech stocks that are pulling back here too we'll keep an eye on it we're back with the express in a couple of hours time but for now a couple of stories to bring to you before we go taking the biscuit streetwear brand supreme is teaming up with oreo to create the supreme oreo while a pack usually costs $3.50, the Supreme Oreo is $8 for three cookies. Wow. Taking the biscuit. But that may still be a bargain. One pack is selling for $17,000 on eBay. Crazy. And we like burgers on this show. McDonald's puts its spin on dinner by candlelight. The fast food chain is releasing candles that smell like quarter pounder ingredients. From ketchup to cheese, the candles come in six flavors and celebrate the burger's nearly 50-year run. Ew. That just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great weekend. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.